Hello, and welcome to How to Handle Patients Who Are Resistant to Services. My name is Rose Trevino. I'm an LCSW, and I am housed out of the Bria of Palos Hills, as well as the Bria of West Hills. I'm a regional preceptor for the South and West regions as well. I started with MPAC in September of 2018, and today I'm gonna to talk with you about the barriers that we encounter working with this population, as well as why those barriers are different than some of the traditional barriers we face in the community settings. I'm going to talk with you about ways we can work to overcome those barriers, as well as some tips and tricks I found to be helpful in working with this population. I'll begin by talking about the barriers we encounter and how they're different than our traditional barriers in the normal community setting. Um, in, a, in a traditional community setting where social workers provide therapy to residents, uh, one of the biggest obstacles they, they encounter is access to those services. How do they get at a, um, a therapist and, and how do they um, access those services? Uh, sometimes that's an issue that's a financial issue or it's just an issue of transportation um, and that's that can be very difficult for them to overcome. A second barrier is time constraints. They have difficulty accessing time to get to us and make, make time to meet with us on a weekly basis and that makes it hard for people to be able to receive therapy services. Um, and those are two barriers we don't have to face in, in the uh, skilled nursing setting. Um, we're able to provide services on a regular basis, and um, those services are pretty easily available to our residents in that we are there for, you know, a good part of the week, and they see us, they're familiar with our faces, and they know that, um, that they are going to be able to have um, easy access to us. The other issue is time constraints. Our residents have, for the most part, um, time to meet with us. Uh, aside from attending medical appointments, visits with family, or if they're out on activities or just participating in the activities in the building, they generally have the time to meet with us. So those are things that we don't really need to be as concerned about because they're not things that we would face in this type of setting. So I think part of what we get used to is kind of over, is that these residents have a different type of barrier. And what are those barriers? Um, it takes time for the residents to get used to who we are and what we're going, what services we're going to provide. I have found that um, that's probably one of the biggest barriers we encounter. Often the residents have had um, a lot of people come in and out of their their path and say that they're going to help them out with something, and a lot of times it's just difficult because of, of, you know, scheduling, staffing issues that they don't, they don't follow up or they aren't able to provide those services that they were hoping to receive. Um, for us, that's a difficult barrier for us to overcome. We have to prove to our residents that we are who we say we are and that they can trust us. And for me, I think that's the biggest one that I've encountered and the one that I've really had to work the hardest to overcome for my patients. Um, Another one within that uh, is that they may have had an encounter with a mental health professional in the past and maybe it didn't go well. Um, you know, a lot of times they have this preconceived notion of what it is to receive therapy and what it is to have um, mental health services. And 
And it's really hard for us to break down that barrier and, and overcome that, that, that wall that they have put up. Another barrier that I find very, very challenging for us is broken trust. Um, very closely related to proving that you are trustworthy to your, your patients. Um, and for an assortment of reasons, both from the past and in the present, patients have experienced broken trust. It may have been with their own, within their own family and within dynamics that you know, we will hope to explore with them, um, or it may have been within the, the um, meta healthcare setting. They may have um, you know, had some type of, of, of breach of trust that they, they have now set up, put up walls do not have to have to manage with them, with mental health professionals. Um, and I think that this is an obstacle that we often are able to overcome by exhibiting that we are trustworthy um, people and that we are going to provide the services we say we are to our residents. Another huge, huge issue I see is uh, frequent changes in staff. Um, a lot of times residents become very close to their CNA or their nurses or an activity aid, even some, you know, the social worker, social services in the building, and there's a change in staff. Maybe that's not their nurse anymore. Maybe that's not their CNA. Maybe there's somebody has left. They're not there anymore. And so they were able to put down their, their walls and they were able to build trust with this person, but now this person is gone and that's how they see it as an issue is that like they're going to come and they're going to say they're going to help me and then they're gone. Um, so, you know, that causes them to become more guarded with new faces and with time and um, with time and, and, and continue to work with them, we are able to overcome that. Uh, one thing that I think is, is another big issue is uh, cognitive impairment. Um, just difficulty communicating their needs and they need extra time to communicate. Um, this may cause them to become self-conscious, shut down. Um, they may not even try to communicate because they think that maybe you won't give them enough time to do that. They're just, they're just not in, the, in a place where they're able to do that. So assessing what is their method of communication. Um, patients often use different ways to communicate, such as a communication board, a tablet, um, speech generator, and learning how to use those tools um, that they need to communicate is very important. Um, interestingly, I have a patient who has expressive aphasia and he refuses to use his speech generating device. Um, he often will continue to just try and speak even though what he's saying is, is something that we can't understand um, and will not doesn't feel comfortable using his, his device. Um, Therefore, and initially I thought that he was, you know, not somebody that I could work with and that he wouldn't be willing to work with me with his speech tablet. Um, and one day, just out of curiosity, I pulled up a blank document on my, my laptop on a Word document and um, I just offered it my laptop for him to type on and he was happy to type out a conversation with me via the laptop. You know, I then very, very diligent about deleting those notes immediately after the session to protect his privacy, but it is the comfortable method of communication for him. Um, and it's not something, you know, that other, other resident, other staff, I should say, have time to sit and speak with him about. Um, so he's always very happy 
to meet with me and, and get out the laptop and be able to type comfortably. Um, a very typical barrier that we face is a resident's denial of need. Um, you know, they're in a place where it's just that they, they aren't ready to accept our services. They don't realize that at this time they really need them. And sometimes it's somebody who's maybe new to the building I've noticed and they're just trying to figure it out. And that's kind of a time where you can introduce yourself and, and be somebody that is, becomes a familiar face to them. Um, so that's one that I feel takes us some time and just allowing those residents to have the time they need to, to begin to open up to us. Pride. Um, patients may not be in a place where they acknowledge that they could benefit from services. I often will say to a patient they have the right to refuse the services and if they change their mind, I'm happy to be of service to them. At that point, I feel like I've empowered them to use self-determination while leaving the door open to future sessions if they decide that they would like to meet with me down the road. Um, and that's someone who, if I see them in the hallway or I see them around the building, I'll say hi and acknowledge them, you know, and just to continue to open that door and make them feel that, you know, just because they said, no, they don't want to talk to me doesn't mean I'm not going to still, you know, meet, see them and, and be friendly with them when I encounter them. Okay. So now I'm going to talk about ways that I've been able to overcome some barriers and especially people who have initially refused to meet with me or have maybe met with me a few times and then said, no, I don't want to meet with you anymore. Um, and how I've kind of been able to turn those residents into people that I meet with on a regular basis. Um, one of the simplest things I do is I'll answer call lights. Uh, often when I walk the hallways, I see a call light on and I'll just pop my head in and ask the patient what they need. And a lot of times it's something very, very simple. Um, it's, I've picked up a lot of remotes off the floor, a lot of things that have fallen that they can't reach, you know, opened a drink for them or, you know, change a TV channel. Those simple little things um, are things that take me, you know, less than a minute or two. And it acknowledges that, hey, I'm here, you know, I'm here to, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Do you need any help? You know, it's somebody that like, it's a friendly face for them. Um, and sometimes that's something where you're able to, you know, you're helping the staff and that it's just a, a simple task. You flip their call light off and you leave, but then they also remember that you're somebody who's in the building that is paying attention to them. Um, a good example of this is a patient I had who had um, met with me and then, you know, we did the initial and then she was like, decided that she wasn't really, you know, ready at this point. And, um, Multiple times I, I had answered her call light and almost always it was a dropped remote, a dropped cell phone charger, you know, opening a drink, like I said. And at, after I had done this a few times, I reintroduced the idea of meeting with me because I could see that not having these things taken care of, like not, like not being able to, you know, at, reach her remote on the floor was causing her anxiety. She didn't want to have to turn on her call light to get staff to help her. She was very upset about her loss of independence and and reframing it for her in that way and and presenting that hey you know we can talk about this we can we can come up with some coping skills we can overcome some of these these issues you're having you know has been was really helpful for her at that point when when she realized that was something more we could do with her after after we I gave her some of time and space to to begin to trust me on her own um, and now she's somebody who I meet with on a very regular basis. We have 
a good rapport and, you know, she's really been able to, to open up to me. Um, another great example is address losses. So our residents face so many different types of losses. Um, you know, it might be a loss of a roommate. Did they change rooms? Have they passed? Did they go to another building? Are they in the hospital? Uh, loss of independence. Um, a lot of our, the new residents that come in for long-term care are really in, just reeling from that, that loss of independence. They came from an independent setting and now here they are and they have to follow these rules and they have to, you know, adjust to this new setting and lifestyle. Um, changes in their health, you know, we may have some, I've had many patients who were able to walk or able to feed themselves, able to, you know, manage their, their um, personal care, personal hygiene, and now, now they aren't able to do those things. And, and that is very, very stressful and traumatic for them. Um, and a great example I have of this is a wonderful older lady who had severe anxiety, um, even just talking with me and bringing up, you know, her, the situation, the, the, um, the event surrounding her admission to the building caused her anxiety just to talk about it or even, even, even mention it to her. So, um, she was somebody who I let, I let, I let that be. I, I gave her the time. And after some time, I learned that her roommate, who she had lived with for many years, had passed away. And I saw her in the hallway and she was just kind of sitting there reading and I stopped her and I said, you know, that I was really sorry for her loss and, you know, and expressed my condolences. And she was so surprised and pleased that someone thought to see how she was doing. And she mentioned to me that, you know, she didn't think anyone thought about how she felt when she lost her roommate. Um, and that was somebody who I was able to meet with then afterwards, um, you know, pretty regularly because I had really you know, noticed that she had this loss and that it was something that was really traumatic for her. Um, room changes can be incredibly difficult for patients. In um, the facility I'm in, they're um, working on doing some construction. So as a result, a lot of the residents have been moved to different units or placed with other roommates that they aren't as familiar with, and this has caused a great deal of stress. Um, so when I approach those residents at that point, um, I'm really trying to see how they're, they're doing adjusting to those changes. And, and then I'm willing to talk with them about that and process those emotions and feelings they have as a result. Um, a lot of times I've noticed those, those residents that they, they had their previous roommate, they had a good relationship with, they wanted to um, continue that. And now they kind of feel like, here they are with someone else and how, how's it going to be? And they're nervous about, will they respect their space? And, you know, will they be able to, to cope with this new, this new person? So that's another really good, good way to kind of intervene there. Um, and one little thing that I've done was uh, when I first got to the building, I really worked to learn the residents' names and address them by their names when I see them in the hallway. It seems like a little thing, but I really noticed that they smile, they are happy to see me, they wave. Um, I'm not just somebody passing through the building, you know, and, and not learning who they are. Um, even ones who I know that maybe refuse to meet with me or they've been reluctant, those are ones I really try to, to be friendly with and say hello. And if they're willing to, 
you know, say a few words with me, then I will give them those few moments to speak and, and, and work on building that relationship with them. Um, communicating with staff to learn about behaviors, changes in physical and mental health has been really, really critical and in um, working with some of these resistant clients um, because maybe they didn't just refuse to meet with me, but maybe they're just very, very guarded and have difficulty opening up. Um, I, I see that very often. And if I am able to understand like, hey, they had a disagreement with, you know, somebody else in a different unit last night and I can, you know, maybe I will usually work then to make room in my schedule for them that day and meet with them so I can find out how they're doing, what happened. And maybe they don't feel like they got a voice in that moment to, to talk about how they felt about it. And I can be that person for them. Um, as well as if there's a, a physical change in their condition. Um, whenever somebody is, is, um, you know, had a drastic change, they're not doing well. They, suddenly are, um, are, are at a place where they're not doing as well as they had done previously. You know, those are people I want to intervene with um, quickly so that, that they have that, that time. It's also a good opportunity to open a door um, with, a, with a specific issue I found. It's a time where, you know, maybe they didn't want to talk to me about how well they get along with everybody in the you know, their roommates or somebody and in, in how, how that affects them emotionally. But I sensed it was there. And sometimes that's a, a situation where I can, um, you know, use that as, as a way to open that door for them. This one I think is very important. It's that I follow up on what I tell them I'm going to follow up on. So um, a good example of this I can give is, you know, if they want to be seen by the psychiatrist or they, they're concerned about their medication, they're concerned about some kind of um, medical issue that's going on. You know, at that moment, if I say, I'm going to make sure the make sure that you're on the list so the psychiatrist sees you, or I'm going to let our nurse practitioner know, and I hope, you know, she'll be able to talk with you about whatever your medical issue is. I make sure that I do those things so that that builds trust. I'm not going to just, you know, go in there and say, I'm going to do it and not end up remembering to follow up on it. And then they, they lose trust in me. Um, I think it's really important that I do that. And then I also try to, at the next session, say, hey, you know, I let this person know, you know, I, I hope that that situation has been kind of um, worked out for you. I also try to be very observant of just, you know, some, some needs. Um, before I leave a room, I, I ask them if they need anything. Um, I make sure their call light is also in place in case they need something and they don't have access to it. Um, it just acknowledges that, you know, if there are needs, um, you know, I, I'm aware, I'm trying to, you know, to, to be considerate of them. Uh, consistent behavior. I think this uh, goes in line with, you know, following up on what you tell them you're gonna follow up on. Um, if I tell them I'm gonna come at a certain time, I make sure that I do so. And if for some reason I can't, I, I be sure to notify them that day or if something arises, I acknowledge that that you know, I said that I was going to do this and for whatever reason I wasn't able to and I explained that to them and I apologize. Or you know, I ensure that I, if I'm there, I am there in a timely manner because um, they notice that and it, it's important to them. Um, and so often I hear patients say to me that someone told them they would do something and they never did. And, and in order for me to maintain a therapeutic relationship, I, I strive to do for them what they, what, what we, what I say I will do. 
um, to try and, and keep that as, as healthy as possible. So some of the tips and tricks I would say that I have found are that um, observe behaviors outside of session. So I often observe residents, how they interact with each other and the staff. It tells me their level of engagement with others, their degree of isolation, and their comfort with socializing. Um, I have a couple of residents who they're very social and they will spend a lot of time, you know, with other residents in common areas, outside in the patio, they go to bingo every day. Those are my really social patients and I'm aware of that. If something were to change and all of a sudden I notice they start to isolate, I don't see them in common areas, I try to recognize that so that I, um, I'm able to, to be aware if there's a change that maybe they're not acknowledging to staff or they, they hadn't acknowledged to me yet. Um, on the flip side of that, if I have somebody who's really social or really um, isolative and I notice them socializing, you know, we talk about how that, that change has occurred and, and how do we maintain that and if that's something they're comfortable with and those are, are really important things. I also really like to applaud them when they're so able to overcome some of those barriers. I notice a lot of the residents who are new tend to be more isolative and then as they become more comfortable, they are, they are, um, I see them socializing more. I have one resident who came in who's a younger lady and very, very, um, had a lot of, a lot of emotional barriers that she was just very concerned about spending time with others, very fearful. And she has now become one of my more social residents. Um, and it me it took her, you know, a good six to seven months, but she is, is very social at this point. So I am always applauding her for that, that overcoming that barrier. Um, so also, I, I think this is very, very important uh, tip is that narrowing my focus has proven to aid in reducing resistance. So by assisting in problem solving issues um, that they're facing, it helps me build rapport and trust with them. I find that it's important to focus on empowering the patients to solve those problems themselves so that they have those skills in the future and they don't assume that you're going to be there to solve their problems. Um, some of the examples are getting a pass to go outside, uh, regular schedule to be in and out of bed or in wheelchair, dietary requests, ability to go outside and smoke, access to personal grooming, and how to communication, communicate needs to staff. So um, just to elaborate on this, I think a lot of times when we come from a traditional private practice setting or maybe a more um, community-based social work setting, a lot of the needs that we are addressing for our residents are much larger. Um, you know, it's, it's finding housing, it's finding, you know, um, you know, the services for finances. It's, it's working on those things. But for us, it's, it's really empowering them to manage in this, in this environment. Um, you know, I, I know how they can get a, they can get a pass to go outside. I understand, you know, the steps they need to take, but educating them and like, aiding them in working through those steps and, and overcoming the barriers of communicating with others and some of their fears and their frustrations with having to ask for others permission to do things are things that they are able to then use going forward if they need other services within the building. And it seems like such a, a little thing to us, but it's such a huge thing to them. And it's such a, it makes such a huge difference in their emotional health if they're able to access those things in a way that that is achievable for them. And most importantly, 
Do not be discouraged when someone refuses to meet with you. I always think to myself, maybe they're having a bad day. Um, it's very, very possible. You could go back in a few days or even a week and they may not refuse any of the services and they may not acknowledge that they refused to meet with you previously. Um, building trust and rapport, it takes time and we face a lot of extra layers of distrust and guarded behavior that take more time to overcome than others in other therapeutic settings and relationships. And most importantly, patients refusing our services is not a reflection of you or your ability to provide services to the patient. It's just telling us where they've been and what we need to do to work with them to get them to a place where they are, you know, are, are able to adjust to their, their new setting and, and their needs. Thank you so much for listening. And if anybody has any questions or would like to meet, talk with me about this further, I'm happy Happy to do that. Thank you so much.